0: Just as a warning, John chapter six, John six. Um, Again, we're working our way through uh, the gospel of John, the miracles. Again, the word miracles does not uh, appear in uh, John's gospel. As we'll see, it is the word signs. So we are looking at those and this will take us up to March. Uh, Come March, uh, we will be doing a bit of a transition on Sunday evenings. We'll cross that bridge whenever we... We get there. So John chapter 6, if you will stand with me at a Reverence for God's Word. We want to look at the whole chapter, but just as we read together, I want to read uh, the first uh, uh, 15 verses, which is the miracle, and then we'll look at everything that follows after that. The Apostle John writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. And this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the seed of Tiberius, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread will not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the 12 barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign which he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for... uh, uh, allowed us to gather this evening, especially after the last week of weather. Uh, you've been very gracious to us here in Frankfurt. So, that we ask as we open up your word, would you open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that we would be transformed as we are transfixed. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. May you be seated. I can still remember where I was when I was the thirstiest, is that a word? I just made it up, I'm from Owen County Public Schools. It's a word now. The thirstiest I have ever been in my life. I was at a stage where I thought if I don't drink something now, I just might die, which is American way of saying I've got, uh, I'm a little parched, right? You know, but nevertheless, I remember exactly where I was. I have probably told you this story before. I was in uh, Niger, Africa. Uh, we were coming back from a ministry in a, uh, a, a village that the gospel had just entered into, right? They, uh, we were really the first people as seminary students to go and to walk around this large village uh, the, the IMB had just gotten permission from the chief. And of course, uh, in that government, even though you have, a, you have a national government, it's really the chiefs of each village that actually run things. And he had just given permission for missionaries to come in. And so we would get up super early in the morning, drive three hours, not our three hours, it's African three hours, about a 10-minute drive down the road. They had stripped the, uh, the, the, the road. There was no road. Um, it was just just dirt. And it took a long way to get over there. Well, we we had just ministered to them and and everything. And whenever we would leave in the morning, we would get large uh, bottles of water, fill them completely with ice. You could not get any more ice in it, then put the water in it. It would be so hot in the morning that the ice would melt by the time we got to the village, which meant when we were in the village, we were drinking lukewarm water, which is fine, except that by the time we left the village, it was about 120 degrees now, in the morning, when we, actually, when we slept at night, I checked. I had a little thermometer on my bag. It was 100 degrees. I would sleep on top of my sleeping bag and uh, with the window open, right next to the window, 100 degrees. But in the afternoon, as we would return from uh, the village, we would often get caught at a ferry. And sometimes we'd wait five minutes. Sometimes we'd wait three hours. And we, there was nothing for us to do except to wait out in the 120-degree sun. Now, it's not 120 degrees in Kentucky where it's humidity and you can't breathe. It's 120 degrees of just the sun. is about three inches from the top of your head, and it's just baking your skin. And it, you're miserable. You can go inside of the van and try to find some shade, but... But there, you're just, you're just a greenhouse effect. So you have to go outside. There's no shade in the middle of the desert. You're just left to wander around. The river is there, but the river's quite filthy considering what they use the river for. And it's not safe given the wildlife. So all you can do is just wait outside in the hot sun and bake. And I remember one day, I thought, if, if I don't get some fresh water... I'm 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 going to have a panic attack. I I am I I am so parched, and the water we had was was good only for dumping on your head. And lo and behold, I saw it in all of its glory, right there in the middle of the desert. I don't know how it got there, but it was there. I promise, it really happened. There was a guy with a stand of ice-cold Coca-Cola. Right? Yeah, I kid you not. Coca-Cola is there, right? The missionaries just got there, but Coca-Cola has been there for a hundred years. And, and the polar bears were serving it too. It's glorious. And I remember I said, finally, my salvation has come. And so I run over there and, and I got an ice cold Coca-Cola, the, the glass bottle. And I thought what I'm going to do is I'm going to make this glass bottle last me as long as I can. I'll take a few sips here and, and maybe a, a few minutes later, I'll get thirsty again. I'll take a few sips. The problem in Africa is, is that's not the way they roll. In Africa, what they do is sellers of of Coke make money from the selling of the drink and when they return the glass bottle back to to, to the producers. And so he explained to us that we were to stand right there in front of him, guzzle down the Coca-Cola and give it right back to him because he's going to make money on both ends well, that's good for him. I'm, I'm He's a businessman. He, he'd do his own thing. But my plan was I could be out here for another two hours. I'd like to have a backup and I can't keep drinking all this Coca-Cola in the middle of the desert because Coke's not the ideal thing to drink in the middle of the desert. But if you have nothing else, it is it is quite nice. But I remember taking that first swig. And you know, it's sort of swig, right? If you ever play sports and you come off the court or the field and you just take that swig where it's just starting to fall out of your mouth and you don't care, right? My wife was, was on the other end of the country. She can't judge me, right? You know, I'm just, just going to take it all in to the glory of God, right? And, and I'm just swigging it down. And I remember I gave the Coca-Cola, ah, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I gave that, like now I get the commercials, right? And before long, drank it all, me, me and uh, one of the other guys came with us. And almost immediately as we turned back to go about to do something else, it hit me. I'm thirsty again. It's amazing, isn't it, how Not to quote the great theologian, the Rolling Stones, but we really can't get any satisfaction. Right there, the thing I wanted the most was insufficient for my needs. If that's true when it comes to our physical thirst, how much more so with our spiritual thirst? How much more so our spiritual hunger? I cannot get any satisfaction. Notice that this story opens up with the sign here in verses 1 to 15, the sign. And, and we see here a, a miracle that we're all familiar with. And one reason we're familiar with is because outside of the resurrection, this is the only miracle you will find in all four Gospels. All four Gospels are are right there. And with that said, John is the most unique of the four Gospels in this regard, is that he uses it as a launching pad into a long preaching and teaching section, as we will see. But the purpose of John is to illustrate for us who Jesus is. And you see it there, he's moved on from, from where he left off chapter five, which we had to do a little bit of skipping. And verse two, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs. Now, we've already said today that John doesn't use the word miracles, he uses the word signs, and this is consistent with what it is we see in John's gospel. Let me give you a few highlights here because we haven't really taken the time to to do this with, with the screen. Uh, chapter two, verse 11, remember the first sign was turning water into wine, and, and he and John is clear. This is the first of the signs he gave, and that really is the foundation of our understanding of all the other signs. He turns water into wine. He brings life out of death, right? That, that really is a, a good foundation, because he's gonna do the same thing here. He's not gonna turn water to wine. He's gonna turn a little boy's lunch into dinner for everybody, right, into a feast. Same thing in chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Why? Because of the signs. In chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him and says, Rabbi, we know you're different because of the signs. In chapter 4, this is after the event with uh, the woman at the whale and and the other miracle he performs there. This, again, is a second sign that Jesus had performed. And we can look at several others. Those are just four options there that we have leading up to this point. And so we've been trained as a reader to see that a sign is very important. And Jesus here does another sign. Verses 3 to 10 is the crisis. Again, you're familiar with it. In a world without dollar stores and Walmarts, For those from the south, it's WalMarts. Um, Easy access to food was scarce, right? I mean, think about when when the ice storm, when we thought the ice apocalypse was coming this week, right? Chances are you made your way to Kroger or the Walmart or the Krogers or the WalMarts, right? And you went there looking for bread, and you realize what a foolish plan that was, right? And I remember I was like, "Well, we need bread." We have plenty of bread. We need bread, right, in case we all die. Whoever comes next will have fresh bread. So I call like, yeah, there ain't no bread here, right? It's all gone, you know, and, and like everything else is, is gone. Well, that's nice to have for us. We didn't have that back then. Most people would eat uh, fish and bread most, most days. Um, and, and as a result, that if, if you went on a trip like this, you needed to plan accordingly, And Jesus is encouraging people to follow him, and yet there is no such plan to provide for everybody. And so he sees a crowd of 5,000 men, and Jesus sets out to feed them. Now, I'm not the best administrator and planner of things, but if if we're planning an event and we think there is a hint of 500 people coming, you're going to see me in a bit of a panic, right? I mean, that's a lot of food. Feeding five people, growing up in a family of five, that was a lot of mashed potatoes. I mean, my brother and I could could down an entire bag of potatoes just when mom would fixed mashed taters. Right? I mean, we like it was number thing. I joked this morning about after school eating three Tony's pizza. That was an exaggeration. Often I would eat two of those. Right. And that's back when the pepperonis would curl up. You remember those back back, you know, when, when we didn't want Jesus to come back because the world was perfect. Right. It would just curl up and leave extra taste on it. You know what, I, what I'm talking about. Those of you who who had a good childhood. But Jesus plans on feeding 5000 men plus women and children. And John portrays this as a sort of test for the disciples. He knows what he's going to do, but he he invites invites the disciples to come up with some ideas. So they form the uh, kitchen committee, of course, no doubt that's what they do. And uh, they come up with a plan. Well, verse 11 to 13 is is the sign. You know the story. Uh, Jesus takes a little boy's lunch. He blesses it. And he begins to distribute the food by the disciples. So you have 12 disciples with 12 baskets, and they are distributing the food. The more they gave, the more they had on them. So with a little boy's lunch, Jesus feeds Thousands of people and a lot of scholars like to guesstimate about how many people are here If you have 5,000 men, how many women and children does that make the text doesn't tell us? I just assume it's above 5,000 at the end right you pick your favorite number and go with it It's still impressive 5,000 people is 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 quite amazing Now the response to this sign is significant in verse 14 The people saw the sign there's that word again that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. Notice the article there, the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet who is to come into the world. And then when they make that announcement, Jesus perceives, verse 15, that they were going to come by force and make him king. Jesus responds by, uh, by going into solitude. Now, remember, in the Gospels, Jesus is king he isn't made king right this is this is over and over again when when satan tempts jesus with i will give you all the kingdoms of the world you'll bow down to me the assumption is that jesus isn't king already the gospels want you to see no jesus is already king he's already entitled to this he's already ruling over it all you don't make jesus king any more than you make him lord he is already those things However, to make him a political uh, 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 ideal, that's a problem. If only I can think of an application to add there. But we'll move on. Um, and uh, so ultimately, what we see is the people, they receive the gift from, from Jesus, but they fail to understand the significance of the gift. They see in Jesus one who will fill their bellies forever and ever, much like Moses did in the wilderness. Remember, he's the prophet. And Moses had promised in Deuteronomy that the day will come one greater than Moses, a prophet will come to, to provide for the people in the wilderness. And here they are in the wilderness and you get bread, manna, if we could use that word, is given to them freely. And all they have to do is come and and, and, and their bellies are full. They think this must be him Let's make him king. So Jesus chooses solitude and this leads to the storm. I don't wanna spend a lot of time on this. Um, it really is a bridge between the, 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 the manna, the bread of life a narrative. This is really an interruption to the story, but it's, it's a bridge to it. It again, is a familiar story. In John's telling, Jesus moves from the sign to the storm, which again interrupts it. But again, John is returning to a very common theme. Jesus is light in a dark world, right? And so for the reader, we we were thinking, why didn't Jesus just accept the throne? I would, wouldn't you? Think about how many followers on Twitter and Instagram you would get if you were crowned king, right? And that's all that matters. A book deal will come, an interview on CNN and Fox News, and and man, you, you can really, really do some good stuff. Jesus chooses solitude, And while his disciples are sent into a storm, and it is here Jesus walks on water. Now, now I mentioned Jesus is light. Think about it. We don't have time to get into this theme. We're doing a lot at the Capitol, actually, each week. Um, How do they see Jesus if it's dark and stormy? Only if he is light. I think that's what John is wanting us to see. He who can feed the thousands in the wilderness can exercise authority over nature Uh, by walking on the sea and calming the storm. He is life, which is what we'll see with the bread. He is also light, which is what we see in the calming of the storm. With that said, I want to move quickly to the sermon, which is the the real chunk of this chapter. The second half of this chapter is dedicated to this. And so Jesus has made it to the other side. And uh, people start texting each other and say, we found him. We found him. the crowds are seeking him out and they find him in verses 22 to 25. But in verse 26, instead of Jesus excited about this newfound fame, he is critical of those who come to him. Jesus answered them, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you you're not seeking me. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now notice here, this is why John uses the word signs, not miracles. A sign points you to a, 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 a bigger reality, right? Uh, every winter, there's a sign we see, especially in rural communities. I don't know what it means, but it sounds really important to read. Bridge freezes before runway or something like that. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like I should slow down in the wintertime, right? I mean, it's written some cryptic English that I still haven't quite figured out, but I know that something bad could happen if I'm not careful. That sign points me to a greater reality. A stop sign ahead lets me know, hey, something's about to change and I need to make proper precautions. So, too, Jesus says, you saw not the sign, but the loaves. And as a result, you missed what it is I'm, I'm showing you all uh what you want is your bellies to be made full verse 27 do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him god the father has set his seal notice they they seek jesus not because of the true meaning of the signs but so they could benefit from his power you jesus says are controlled by your stomachs clearly then The people following Jesus are Southern Baptists, right? You are controlled by your stomachs. Think about it. Eating is a never-ending cycle of hunger and feel. The minute we finish eating, we are planning our next meal, right? You get to work, just had breakfast, you're thinking, what time's lunch, right? You get lunch, you're thinking, what time's the afternoon break? I might get me a candy bar. Get your candy bar, you're thinking, wonder when supper is, right? Eating is a never ending cycle of hunger and feel. The second you're hungry, you, feel, you, you get full. And the second you're full, you begin the process of hunger. Maybe you're like me. My wife may come in and say, hey, I was thinking about starting dinner. So, okay, good. She goes, are you hungry? What, what's the proper response, man? I'm always hungry, right? I mean, don't ask me if I could eat a meal. I could always eat a meal, whether or not I should. Don't tell the doctor, but I can always eat. What Scripture does is it takes this cycle of hunger and feel, and it it equates it to our inner desire um, and appetites, right? It's not just a physical pattern. It's a spiritual pattern. Think about how often food shows up in the Bible. In Genesis 3, the sin that that leads us into the fall was food, fruit from a tree. In Genesis 25, as we'll see in a few weeks on a Wednesday night, Esau gives up his birthright for a bowl of Campbell's soup. In Exodus, the Jews are complaining over their lack of food in the wilderness. So much so, they say, we'd rather be slaves in Egypt than to be hungry and redeemed. Matthew chapter four, a similar story of Jesus is being told to turn bread or turn stones into bread. And here, in John chapter six, Jesus is nearly made king because people don't want to hunger anymore. What they're saying is, "I can't get no satisfaction." And in these examples, the struggle isn't over mastering hunger pains, but mastering our spiritual appetites. I mean, you all know that I've, I'm, I've, I've been running for several years, and I do enjoy it. It's good, good for me in many ways. But one of the hard lessons I've learned is it is possible to burn 1,000 calories a day and not lose any weight. Not a day. I, I couldn't do that. Uh, but you could, you could burn a lot of calories and still not lose weight. Can, can I explain it to you? The more you burn, the hungrier you get. Right? I mean that never thought occurred to me, right? Because after my metabolism dropped, I got married and stopped exercising. I mean, who am I trying to press, right? I got the girl, right? But now when you exercise, you you realize, especially after a long run for the next three days, I'm meeting like that teenager I used to be, you know, the two Tony's pizza with the pepperonis that curl up. Did I ever tell you about that? Those pepperonis that curl up? Oh, just delicious, delicious. Man, if we could go back to the 90s, that's what I would bring back with me. Um, but... Is because your, your body is trying to, is trying to compensate for, for all the energy you used, right? And so I, for every Thanksgiving, I, I like to get up early in the morning, run long, and then tell myself, now I have X amount of extra calories I can consume, right? I mean, I love That's a good feeling in the world, right? You're going to go for that extra layer of gravy on your mashed taters and your pumpkin pie. You're thinking, it's all right, everybody. I ran six miles this morning. It's okay. You know, I don't know what excuse y'all have. But what I have found is exercise comes easy. Any of us can get up right now. We could walk home. Any of us could exercise. We could do that. You go down to your basement, pumps and iron. Exercise is easy. What is more difficult is dieting. It's easy to burn calories. It's hard not to consume calories. Because you can rationalize like, well, I've been a good boy. Why not indulge a little bit on another layer of chocolate on that cake? Why not? I I burn those calories. How about another tall glass of ice-cold Coca-Cola? It's easy to do those things. Exercise comes easy. Dieting comes hard. So, too, religion and ritual, those things come easy. It's easy to tell people, these are five things Jesus wants you to do, and many people will be able to accomplish them. But when you speak of self-control, when you talk about the appetites, all of a sudden we realize we, many of us are spiritually obese. Controlling the appetites is difficult. And so the Bible repeatedly describes our lust, our desires, and our temptations in the language of appetite and cravings. Let me give you just three examples. Romans sixteen eighteen: For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their appetites. That's very clear. 1 Timothy 6, a false teacher is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. You ever meet people with an unhealthy craving of controversy? They're in your family, and if you can't think of who that person is, it's probably you. And we need to talk before the next business meeting, right? People, they just love controversy. they got to have something to talk about. We could talk about how awful it was playing. If you're really desperate, right, I will help you talk about and complain about something. For, uh, 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? We know that part. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. You see the language, is, it's, it's this desire, right? It's no accident that Jesus will say in the in Beatitudes, Blessed are they who hunger and they thirst for righteousness. This language is all over the Bible. Unchecked indulgence in sin is like an obese heart of patient adding more gravy onto his food. We consume what we crave and we indulge in that in which we desire. Jesus is not concerned here with their dietary habits, but about their deepest desires. And talking in his book on temptation, Russell Moore is right when he said, thinking about the generation of wilderness, he said, what we see there is that many of us would rather be fed than to be fathered. I think that's true. We rather like, want to be given what it is we want to be heard, what it is that, 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 that what we want to be said, what it is that we want to receive, rather than to be discipled to the way of Christ, because that might require self-control and spiritual dieting. So you see there in verse 28 what it is that the religious people ask right they said to him what must we do to be doing the works of God and that's a good question on the surface but it reveals the problem with their hearts they think spiritual growth is about doing they think well we'll give us that list we'll check it off and then you can fill our bellies again and Jesus is like that's the problem that's the problem You do the list so that you can get from God. The whole point is that you would have God himself. And Jesus's answer is not a list. He answered verse 29, this is the work of God. Here it is. You want to know the answer? Here it is. That you believe in him who God sends. That's the list. Believe. Believe. And notice his implication is that when you believe, you will be full." but they have no category for faith alone. Their category is, we will do, we will be full, and then we'll keep doing so we can keep getting full. What is the bare minimum that we have to get from you? And so notice they want to make a bargain in verse 30. They said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, again, you're like, how about I feed 5,000 plus of y'all with a little boy's lunch, right? I hear that one really works with, with, with the crowd. But it reveals their hearts, doesn't it? See, they were full yesterday. They're hungry today. Right? So, so that was good yesterday, but what else can you do for me, Jesus? Well, what else can, can you help me with? It's not enough that you fed me one day. I need another sign. I need more evidence. Perform another miraculous sign, we'll believe in you. And then you'll notice they point to Moses. Verse 31, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. Here, now they're quoting the Bible, super spiritual. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Notice what they're saying there as well. All we're asking is for you to do what Moses did for the people. Remember, they think this is the prophet bread in the wilderness. I've read that story before. He said, Jesus, don't you see God provided bread for our ancestors in the wilderness every day, every day. So why is it that you can't do the same for us? So Jesus corrects the reading of the story, verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. There it is, true bread. In John's gospel, you'll find the pattern where people will confuse the spiritual with the physical. To Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, I can't go back to my mama's belly. No, 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 spiritually speaking. Uh, come, I'll give you water. You'll never be thirsty again. Well, give me this, this, this pail of water. No, 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 no. It's a spiritual water. Here, the same thing is, is, is that God now gives you a true and better bread, a spiritual bread. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread. And immediately you see the connection between the woman at the well, sir, give me this water. And the crowd, sir, give me this bread. They're essentially the same story in in many ways. But what is Jesus' point? He's saying to the people, as God sent manna from heaven, it came down from heaven to satisfy the people So, too, God has sent me a true and better bread, a true and better manna to you to satisfy your soul. That's the point of the sign. Now, verse 34, notice, uh, Sir, give us this bread always. Now, this is the cry of every man, woman, and child. Think about it. What do the alcoholic, the womanizer, the porn addicted, the greedy businessman, the gossiper, the compulsive liar, the braggart, the religious fanatic all have in common? They all look for God in the wrong place. They are all looking for transcendence but can't seem to find it. They're all looking for satisfaction but in a place of futility. G.K. Chesterton in this, in this uh, vein, uh, I love this quote from him. Um, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. I love that. I love that. Because it's much bigger than the brothel, isn't it? Sin takes the natural desires and longings of the heart and points them away from the only one who can meet them. Sin turns good things into God things. And thus we distort good things and we are destroyed by them. C.S. Lewis says, I think it's mere Christianity. The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires uh, exists. Now, we should pause there and consider this is a Christian worldview. When the world may think, well, Christians are killjoys, right? They think desires are bad. Actually, we say desires are good because they point us to something deeper within us. And there's real satisfaction in those desires. So so this is Lewis's point. A baby feels hungry. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desires. Well, there's such a thing as sex. But if I find in myself, this is the big quote, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. He goes on. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. So, when we are driven by our appetites, what we are confessing, though we may not realize it, is we were meant for something deeper and greater than this thing, this addiction, this desire, this craving, this whatever it might be. And we've into the lie that this thing can satisfy us this is where idolatry comes from if i have the nicer house if i had the perfect family if we were instagram photogenic right of, of, of a marriage if, if if our church was larger if our city was richer if, if my, my, my background was better if my degrees were longer if if these things then i would be content then I'll be satisfied, then I'll have my peace. And what we've done is we've, we've assumed we were meant for this world and our longings of our heart can be satisfied in this world. And that's not the whole point of those desires. We hunger for something more than food. We hunger for something more than what this world can offer. And the longings of our soul is to know Jesus. That's his point in verse 35. I am the bread that you're looking for. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Now, this is one thing I love about John. At one point in this story, was water ever mentioned? He offered bread. Doesn't mention water. They're in the wilderness, I've shared this story with you before, actually a few weeks ago, um, when I, I used to teach my parents discipleship training class. And I was trying to teach on this point. We were in the Beatitudes, hunger and thirst for Jesus. So I, I baked some brownies. Brownies will suck the uh, moisture out of your body in an instant, right? That's, that's what we love about it, right? And so I got everyone brownies, but I forgot that they're all adults. So, in, so right before uh, Bible study, they just all got up and got them coffee. And the whole point was, The whole Bible study, you're going to be thirsty, thus to illustrate it. But they're adults, and they had to have their coffee. That kind of ruined my my illustration. But you'll notice here Jesus, who in the narrative didn't offer water. He did to the woman at the well. But in this narrative, he didn't. He did calm the storm, yes, but they weren't given water in the narrative. He's saying, if you'll come to me as the bread of life, as the water of life, you will never hunger, nor will you ever thirst again. Therefore, to know Christ is to be satisfied, whether you are starving in the wilderness or feasting among kings. To know Christ is to have joy, whether mourning death or celebrating life. To know Christ is to have peace, whether you're in the midst of chaos or you're in the midst of wonder. To know Christ is to have life, whether rich or poor. Sick or healthy, (coughs) man or woman, young or old. (coughs) Excuse me. When your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, your hope is built on a more sure foundation. This is Lewis's point. Excuse me, my goodness. I am hungering and thirsting up here. (coughs) You're awake now. Again, Lewis, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, (coughs) good night, is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see? The problem isn't hungering and thirsting. We are made to hunger and thirst. The problem is is the shortcuts we think will bring satisfaction. We've settled for a bottle of Coca-Cola in the desert when we need something far better. And you'll notice where he goes in verse 40. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him would have eternal life. And in John's gospel, eternal life isn't you die and you're with Jesus. It's today I choose to die. So that today I can be with Jesus. Whether my feet are on this land or in the land to come. This is the will of the Father. To look upon the Son, believe in Him, and have eternal life. Think about it. The young 20-something, she just wants her boyfriend back. She's starving, the religious fanatic that demonizes those who differ from him. He is starving, the man who frequents pornographic sites is starving, the church member angry over insignificant things, starving, the dad yelling at the referees at his child's baseball game, starving, the disrespectful wife who manipulates all that she can Starving, the pastor who measures his ministry by the praise it heaps. Starving, the so-called saint that would dare to look at the cross and ask, why haven't you done something for me lately? Starving. At the same time, the single dad who rejoices in Christ, he will be filled. The high school student on their knees, planning their future, they will be filled. The mother who rests knowing that Christ loves her children even more than her, she shall be filled. The church who longs to participate in the great work of God, they will be filled. The pastor who stands firm in the gospel, confident in his calling, will be filled. The saint who weathers every storm, patiently waits for God's timing, all the while worshiping him, will be filled. Jesus is bread of life. Let's pray.